Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we call directors names. Uh, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Hello. <laughs> what director, who, who are you going to call names today? Because I have several directors that I'm going to call names. Uh, well, definitely James Gunn. <laughs> Yes, when we when we started, like just, we were just talking about this right before we started recording. Like Karen was like, "Oh, I opened the agenda, and it just says James Gunn is a dingbat." <laughs> so <laughs> that was yeah. a great way to start my Saturday. <laughs> this this is just, I mean, I I feel like that this is this is almost a, a, a this is a point at which it's a truism. Like you don't even really need to say it. It's just like, oh, James Gunn has said something stupid. Yes like color I mean, me surprised. it must be a day that ends in y yeah exactly it's like oh my god james gunn said something stupid my my word but it does piss me off because every time i'm a little bit excited about one of his films he does something like that and says something dumb and then i'm like oh great so now you continue to try to ruin margot robbie for me thank you for that um yeah. you know just white male directors really trying to ruin her for me they can't quite do it because she exceeds them. She she rises above all of that. But she's better still, than all of them combined. She really, she really is. <laughs> she really is. So we're going to start with not spending too much time on this. But honestly, I just wanted to mention it because I'm like, oh, my God, how can how how is this still a thing that is being talked about? Um, so we're going to talk about it. So James Gunn in doing kind of a the the round of um of press for his, his new film, The Suicide Squad, which we're also going to talk about a little bit later, was asked about uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, infamous, according to Variety, infamous comments uh, about Marvel and superhero films in October 2019. So this is two years ago, okay? This is two years ago that Scorsese has, has said this. Um, and Gunn was asked about it, and Gunn basically <laughs> said a number of stupid things, but one of the most stupid things that he said was that Scorsese was just trying to get uh, press for his film um, and that he was using Marvel as kind of like this this thing to get his, his name in the press or something like that. And that just, that just makes me so angry that someone who's such a mediocre director like James Gunn could say that about a, a director who is acknowledged by most people as being one of, if not the greatest living director of our time, right? Um, and I don't always like Scorsese's films. I don't always think that, you know, what he does is great. I loved The Irishman. There are other films of his that I don't like. But this is someone who can sell his films based upon his name alone. He is that caliber of director, right? You put a Martin Scorsese film at the beginning of the movie and instantly it has cachet. Whether or not it deserves it, right? Um, so to have someone like James Gunn, who's like, oh, he just wants publicity. It's like, he wants publicity, and he's specifically referencing The Irishman, right? It's like, he wants publicity for the film that he made 
with Al Pacino and, and Robert De Niro, like that that is is like widely considered to be one of the penultimate films of, of the past few years. Like he wants publicity for that. Like and so he's using superhero films. It's like Jimmy Scorsese doesn't have any idea who you are. Like he has no clue. He's off working on his own film right now. He has absolutely no idea who James Gunn is. Probably has no idea that there's a movie called The Suicide Squad being released because he doesn't give a shit about this. There's so many things in this that just made me want to punch him so hard because like, first of all, he, one of, one of his, one of the quotes in the Variety article, sorry, I'm not able to speak. It's Saturday morning. I can't speak on Saturdays. Anyway. um, But he says, I would, this is a tweet from a while back. I was outraged when people picketed the last temptation of christ without having seen the film i'm saddened that he's now judging my films in the same way uh no that wasn't what he was doing he was answering a question scorsese was answering a question at the time about marvel movies and his thoughts on them he answered honestly that he felt like they were theme park rides and you know what as a fan of the marvel movies i don't disagree with him he wasn't wrong but then to sit there and say, oh, he keeps talking about it or he kept talking about it at the time. The only reason he kept talking about it is because people kept asking him about it. And he was just like, listen, this is just what I think. You know, it's not like he was going on a rampage against Marvel films. And then later on in this article, it says he just kept coming out against Marvel so that he could get press for his movie. No, first of all, the movie was he didn't need to do that because like you say he's martin scorsese second of all he was given who knows how much money from netflix which you know they 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 do there were there were billboards all down sunset boulevard advertising the irishman there was so much press for the irishman that he didn't need to attack Marvel and he wasn't trying to attack Marvel and he never did actually attack Marvel. And then he goes on, he's creating his movie in the shadow of the Marvel films. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I, but I think that that's what makes some of this so ludicrous and probably why we keep on talking about it is that there is this self-importance coming out from a lot of these filmmakers. Mark Ruffalo like said something similar, right? And, and you're like, do you know what Scorsese does for, for film? Do you know like what he is up to? Like it's, it's kind of like, it's these little, these little men, right? Making, like taking pot shots at this director who I honestly don't think that he cares. Like, and Scorsese is even acknowledged. He's like, I'm like, you know, almost 80 years old. I am not the demographic for these exactly. movies, right? So, so it's just like, so you've got this great filmmaker who just doesn't happen to like the genre of films that you are making. Fine, who cares? Like, I'm certain that there are lots of films that I love that Scorsese doesn't love. That's okay. It's okay. Mm-hmm. It's also okay for you to not like his films, to be like, well, I just don't find them interesting. Fine, who cares? Yeah, it's fine. But so after all this happened and went down, you know, then then Gunn had to go back and clarify his remarks because, you know, he couldn't just stand by what he said. So he he uh, 
acknowledged that Scorsese is, quote, probably the world's greatest living American filmmaker. Probably. (laughs) And then he says they agree solely on one, disagree solely on one point, that films based on comic books are innately not cinema. Is that what Scorsese said? (laughs) I mean, I think it, I think he did say something about I don't remember the the full the full quote because he was I don't think he was giving it much thought. He was just like, well, this is what I think, you know. Um, and, and I think he did say something about that he he likened them more to amusement park rides and less to what he considers to be cinema. Again, we could disagree with him on that point. Like, In his New say, York Times opinion article, what he says is that the Marvel films are not, let's see, let me find the exact quote. The title says, I said Marvel movies aren't cinema, let me explain. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and yeah, and, and again, we can disagree with him on that point. I do disagree with him on that point. And I, and I, I think that this is true for not all, not all superhero films necessarily, but I think that there are a lot of superhero films that say something about our culture, that um, definitely their popularity says something. And I do think that they're cinematic and I think that they're capable of being cinematic. I don't think all of them are quite what he describes as cinema. Right. And right. so some of it is about definition. Some of it is about personal opinion, you know, all of that stuff. So fine, you can have a dialogue about it, but to turn around and be like, oh, he's just trying to get publicity. It's just like, yeah. Just like, okay, dude, who is currently going on a junket to publicize his film mm-hmm. and is like calling out Scorsese, who again, I would be shocked to, to know that Scorsese has any idea who James Gunn is. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that's the thing. It's like, you want to talk about someone doing something for publicity. It's to keep going on with this stuff, you know? And and I, I'm not just blaming James Gunn for that. He was answering a question in an interview. But at least presumably, I didn't actually see the full text of the interview. I don't know if he just brought it up on his own. I'm going to trust that he didn't. Um, but but that's the thing it's like he now keeps talking about this imagined fake war with scorsese and he's drumming up the hype Mm -hmm. and and defending marvel movies which he's not even promoting a marvel movie right now he is promoting a comic book movie but it's not a marvel movie so anyway the whole thing is just stupid and silly and i think the next time some idiot or dingbat wants to bring this up we should just ignore them yeah, it, it's it's gotten to the point of being just exhausting. Obviously, I I think that this this one went a little bit further for me because there was this accusation that Scorsese was just using this for publicity, which is just so. That's yeah, that's that's a bridge too far. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just like, and in some ways, it's embarrassing. It's just like, I mean, I do have the sense of like how dare you sir like how mm-hmm. dare you use this man's name when you don't even like come close to his caliber of director like how exactly. dare how dare and and not only that i mean you're talking about um a filmmaker scorsese is a gr- is a great filmmaker in my opinion obviously but this is also a filmmaker who has done a lot for cinema and by that i mean he is he's the founder of the World Cinema Project. Mm -hmm. He is on the board of directors of that. He is a major proponent of film restoration and he puts his money where his mouth is. He funds the restoration of films. He funds the World Cinema Project and helps to bring films from other nations that have smaller film industries or that have nation film industries and actually bring them to the West, bring them more into the public consciousness, make them available to people. Like that's the whole goal 
of a lot of what he does. He's a major producer. This is someone who produces not just his own films, but all kinds of different films, some of them good, some of them bad, but he's like actually deeply engaged in the world of cinema. And to have someone just basically be like, oh, you're just trying to, to get publicity for your own movie. It's just like, he's 78 years old, leave him alone. Like he's just doing his thing. Like he's been doing his thing since the seventies. Yeah. Just enjoy the fruits of his labors and go make your own mediocre movies. It's fine. Uh, anyway, so we just, we kind of had, to, I mean, we had to address it, I guess. We are going to talk about Suicide Squad later on. Um, but before we do that, uh, I want to talk about Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> because shocking because as I told Karen earlier this week, I was like, hey, by the way, like next weekend is Hitchcock's birthday. Um, it is Hitchcock's birthday is uh, August 13th. So the, this is actually kind of early, but it's, we record on Saturdays or Sundays. Um, and I was like, we should t- definitely talk about Hitchcock. Um, so yay, Hitchcock's B-Day is next week. Everybody do a dance. Yay. Um, I think that we've answered this before, but Karen, what's your favorite Hitchcock film? Uh, you know, it changes every time I think about it. Right now, today, it's Psycho. <laughs> <laughs> So that's your favorite. That's today. That's my favorite. Okay. <laughs> what about yours? That's cool. Well, usually it comes down to either the lady vanishes or psycho. Um, I yeah. think that my favorite is probably the lady vanishes because I, I think that his masterpiece is psycho. I think my favorite is the lady vanishes just because it's the one that I I've seen the most times probably. And um, it's just so much fun. And kind of gets at all of the things I really like about Hitchcock in a lot of ways. But, you know, I'm, I'm someone that has watched these films multiple times and I love, I love all of, I love most of them, not all of them, mm-hmm. caveat there. I love most of them for a number of different reasons. And even some of his, his really early stuff, his melodramas, his comedies um, are, have a lot of, of qualities and a lot of wonderful qualities that I, I like watching. Uh, one of my others is definitely Trouble with Harry because which i have not watched i recorded it because they had a hitchcock like marathon a couple like a month or two ago on tcm and so i recorded a few that i haven't seen and that was one of them oh definitely watch the trouble with harry the trouble with harry um it it seems to divide people and i think a lot of people aren't quite prepared for the fact that it is a comedy like the 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 whole setup of it everything is is comedic it's not intended to be a really you know, violent or nasty Hitchcock film, particularly. But um, it's so funny. And there are so many scenes that are, are obviously just there for the quirkiness of them. Like <laughs> there, you know, all of these, there's there's a hilarious discussion of blueberry muffins in the midst of, of this like investigation of a murder. <laughs> and, and you know, this the, the body being buried and then dug up and then buried and then dug up. And it's very funny, but it, it is very light. Um, and is, is actually, if you've seen a lot of Hitchcock's earlier British works, it seems to be very much him taking kind of the, the mentality of his earlier British films and bringing it to the United States because it takes place in, um, it takes place in Massachusetts in the, the fall. So it's like all these beautiful fall colors and then the discovery of this dead body in the middle of the woods, which then all of these different characters have to deal with what are they gonna do about it basically. Mm-hmm. So it's so good, so much fun. I don't know why it divides opinion. I think it's charming. Uh, I don't know why you wouldn't be charmed by it, but some people, 
not not so much. And also, <laughs> I think I'm not. It might be Shirley MacLaine's film debut. Um, oh. Definitely one of her earliest films, and she's wonderful. She plays a great kind of Hitchcock heroine. I love her. She she's marvelous and very funny. Um, so we wanted to talk a little bit about the word Hitchcockian. And in fact, I just said, well, it's not quite a Hitchcock film, which is a bizarre thing to say, because <laughs> obviously The Trouble with Harry was directed by Hitchcock. Are you saying um, that there are some films directed by other people that are more Hitchcockian <laughs> than a film directed by Hitchcock? Well, I, I mean, yes and no. See, I have issues with the word Hitchcockian. So... <laughs> I and like I literally just I googled it and I was like okay how do people actually define the word Hitchcockian and one of the things that comes up is is a number of different elements right and there there seem to be certain things that we associate with Hitchcock as a director um, that don't always appear sometimes not even in most of his films yeah um, but because there are I think because certain of his films are so famous and so popular. Um, and have continued to be over, you know, the course of 50, 60 years. And I think that that's kind of why we have certain associations with Hitchcock and we have certain associations with the concept of, of Hitchcockian that don't necessarily appear in very many Hitchcock films. So this is just from the Wikipedia article. Um, and they're saying that elements considered Hitchcockian include a climactic plot twist, which... <laughs> By the way, that's like most thrillers. I don't know how you would call that Hitchcockian. <laughs> um, the cool platinum blonde. I mean, we've talked about the Hitchcock blonde, my issues with it. We'll yeah. about that a little bit more. The presence of a domineering mother. Again, um, I want you to actually like run down Hitchcock films that you've seen in your head and how many of them have domineering mothers in them. Uh, and I'm gonna tell you right now that the majority of his films do not. And off the top of my head, I can think of two. <laughs> i'm sure I mean, there are more but <laughs> uh and one man of them isn't actually there <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so we could talk about that as well but that's that's the thing i think that it's some of the things that are in his most famous or most iconic films and less about what are what's actually in the films yeah um so an innocent man accused again this is a common thriller trope. A lot of these are common thriller tropes, like um, restricting the action to a single setting to increase tension. That seems a bit weird to me, but okay. Well, um, and they have two examples there, and it's like, well, yeah, I can, and I can think of a couple more. But I guess again, technically, the lady vanishes would be one. The lady vanishes. Rope. Uh, I mean, yeah. rope would be a big one. Um, Dial yeah. in for murder. Uh, yes, those are the ones that I can come up with. There might be some earlier films that are similar. Definitely, he makes use of claustrophobia, and yeah. and he did like, particularly in his his later films, to experiment with that kind of thing to see, like, okay, we're going to make a film, we're going to make a thriller entirely set on a lifeboat. You know, we're going to make a thriller entirely set in a single room with during the over the course of a dinner party. So he what he did definitely enjoy experimenting with those single settings and trying to get trying to see you know how i think some of it was just a puzzle how he could solve problems like how do you have a murder on a lifeboat you right. know how do you have a murder that occurs and then they throw a dinner party over the corpse you know how do you do that 
Mm -hmm. um, and, and still make it work, right? Still make it make sense. It's almost Agatha Christie sort of thing. Like the murder occurs in a locked room. No one can get in or out. How did it happen? It's that kind right. of puzzle. Yeah. Um, characters who switch sides or cannot be trusted. Again, I am asking you how many thrillers do this? <laughs> Are all thrillers Hitchcockian? Like every thriller since the beginning of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, tension building through suspense to the point where the audience enjoys seeing the character in a life-threatening situation. What? Huh? The, the example that they give is Vertigo. Um, and I'm not... So, I'm like, trying to read this again. Like, I don't even understand I, what it's trying to say. Tension building through <laughs> suspense to the point where the audience enjoys seeing the character in a life-threatening situation anyway i'm not going to go through every single one of these but so so a lot of the ones that are being referenced uh it, and this is just the wikipedia article right so this is not like an academic definition of what hitchcockian is or anything like that but a lot of these again most a lot of these are familiar tropes and thrillers generally before long before hitchcock became a director um, and long after him, right? So I don't know whether we would necessarily say that some of these things are Hitchcockian. Definitely the whole, the wrong man is a trope that he really likes to use. Um, the, the concept of the MacGuffin is a trope that he really likes to use. And I think that he actually, uh, he did actually coin the term for it. Um, but it was really more, in some ways, some of the things that are being referenced here are things that he noticed, I think, in other types of mystery plotting, of thrillers, of, you know, murder stories, etc., and kind of put words to them or catalyze them on film. And so, and because he's such an iconic director and became such an iconic director, we have this reference point as of Hitchcock, when in reality, if you look at a lot of these, like I say, you know, the, the puzzle story, the locked room story, those are all pretty common thriller tropes both in literature and in cinema. So it's not like Hitchcock created them. He just sort of made them famous in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. So the, the MacGuffin, I think, is the major one that um, in terms of Hitchcock actually, actually not creating it, but pointing it out, sort of saying, okay, you know what a MacGuffin is? Here's, here's a MacGuffin. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, it's the same thing that, that I think that, uh, Savo Zizek refers to the Hitchcockian blot. Um, and the Hitchcockian blot is, is usually a, uh, an, a something wrong in the frame, in the music, a musical cue. Um, but one of, one of the most famous examples is uh, in Strangers on a Train during the tennis match. You have oh. everyone watching the tennis ball go back and forth. And then there's a blot, and what we've what eventually um, draws the viewer's eye is Bruno. Bruno isn't moving with the rest of the crowd, and that's the Hitchcockian blot. That's the thing that's wrong in the frame that, that you might not even notice initially, um, but makes it feel like something is off. Something has is wrong. Something is off kilter, uh, and you it takes you a minute, or sometimes you might not even notice it at all. But it takes you a minute to kind of process it and realize that like, oh, this is the thing that's wrong. And of course, in the case of Strangers on a Train, the thing that's wrong is literally the wrong character, the character who is off center, who is off kilter, who is not a participant in the rest of society. Um, so, you know, without like reducing everything simply to Hitchcock, I mean, does any of this 
work for you in your opinion? I don't buy that some of this stuff is Hitchcockian per se. Um, so I guess it depends on going back to what we were just talking about with Scorsese and cinema. I think it depends on how we're going to define Hitchcockian. So I think the problem is that even though I don't necessarily attribute all of these things to him, or at least they're not all specific to him. I think that because, because people have spent so much time uh, kind of crafting this like uh, definition of what Hitchcockian is supposed to be, um, that term now has kind of become more than Hitchcock himself or, or separate from Hitchcock himself. So it's like, it's, it's a descriptor that doesn't necessarily describe all or even most of Hitchcock's work, but it evokes sort of an expectation. Like if you put that word on a film, then it's like, okay, I know what I'm going to get. And it's going to be these things, which may or may not truly be from Hitchcock himself. Yeah. And, and I'm, I mean, there are, there are films that we've talked about before that deliberately reference Hitchcock, deliberately. Yeah. And, and by mm -hmm. that, I mean that they're like, they're obviously riffs on like these, some of these tropes. Um, they reference Hitchcock himself or his films. Uh, and, and so there are those. And then there are ones that just this moniker seems to get attached to. Like um, very often M. Night Shyamalan's films are labeled mm -hmm. Hitchcockian. And I'm like, are they though? I mean, he, he sh so uh, Shyamalan shows up in a lot of his films. Okay, Hitchcock did cameos in his films. By the way, Scorsese does cameos in his films as well sometimes. So, and <laughs> so Hitchcock, Fig. yeah, and, and Hitchcock's thing was wasn't really appearing as a character. Very often, these guys appear as characters. He yeah. would like walk on, and you'd be like, "Oh, there's Hitchcock." You know, he's carrying a a, a flute case, or he's getting up out of a wheelchair, something like that. Um, and I guess he, again, as he's probably the most popular version of that. And he's such a recognizable figure, right? Mm -hmm. But he's hardly the only director that does this. Uh, and so is it really Hitchcockian for someone like Shyamalan to appear in his films? I would argue that most of Shyamalan's twists are not Hitchcockian in the least, partially because they're dumb. Uh <laughs> I, I think he is the <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think he is the one that uh, people slap this label. I agree with you. I, Unlike you, I enjoy his movies. I don't think that they're amazing works of art. I don't. But I enjoy them. I think they're fun to watch. But I think that he's one that gets hit with this label that is meant to conjure a certain expectation in his films. And it's not necessarily... Um, accurate to what you're going to get from the experience of watching his movies i do think some of them uh kind like i think split would be one that i feel like kind of earns that title more than uh or that descriptor more than pretty much all of his other ones but um but yeah i think that that's one that people just slapped on him with the sixth sense because of that bullet point number one climactic plot twist and so because of that, it's become this expectation, you know, like I was talking to someone the other day about old and he was referencing the plot twist in old. And I was just like, there's not, there's not a plot twist in old. There's an explanation for what's going on, but that is not a plot twist. And, 
and that's what so many of his movies are not they don't have plot twists but because he he came out swinging with the sixth sense and everyone was so blown away by that one um we kind of like with with hitchcock like now there are these expectations about Shyamalan films and then when he doesn't deliver those expectations because he's not trying to people go oh well this doesn't live up to it it's like no it was never going to live up to the sixth sense he's never going to make a movie like that again he's just not and we just have to accept that and that's why i think i'm able to enjoy his films but Mm. the point of all that is that i think that he got slapped with that label specifically because it it creates this you know this thought of like okay if i go watch this movie this is what i'm gonna be in for and it's it's too bad because i feel like it's setting people up to be disappointed when otherwise they might enjoy themselves yeah i think that that's true i mean i have issues with Shyamalan's films beyond that but but one of the issues that i have is is that we are conditioned at this point to expect that twist right yeah and but one of the interesting things actually i was just thinking about this as as you were saying this about these this plot the climactic plot twist again how many hitchcock films actually have this um vertigo definitely psycho Mm -hmm. uh Rear Window doesn't particularly have a plot twist. We kind of see the buildup and the solution to the mystery, but it's basically what the character thinks is going on from the beginning of the film. Yeah, the plot twist. If there were a plot twist in Rear Window, it would be that like the police officer ended up being a murderer or something yeah. like that. You or, know, <laughs> or you know, uh, or Scott, not Scotty, um, and I can't remember his name. Great, I can't remember the Jimmy Stewart character's name, but yeah, like that he committed the, the murder, or right, it was like yeah. you know covering it up somehow or something like that. But there's no actual twist. No, no. Um, <laughs> you know the so you know even just think about it. North by Northwest, there's no there's not a big twist. Um, mm-hmm. I so and that's really, the thing. It's like because you get it really in Psycho. I think is where that started. Psycho definitely, and, and Psycho has a yeah. big twist, right? It and does. And it's, I, 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 we've said it before that, um, you know, you don't, he could only get away with it once, mm-hmm. right? Because Psycho is so big and such a major moment and so unexpected in that period of cinema. Like now we kind of expect it because it's so iconic. Yeah. But at that point, like, it was just like, holy shit, man. <laughs> like this is, this is, this takes a turn that, that no one in 1961 really was expecting right and i mean couldn't have could not have expected because we had never seen anything like that before to even know to expect it yeah but he only gets away with it one time and he doesn't really try to get away with it again Mm -mm. um you know and honestly i don't feel like like Shyamalan does either like people try to say that he does but he doesn't like like i said he has explanations to what's going on but not twists i think the the let's see he had there's a twist in the visit kind of i mean you can see it coming from a mile away there's a twist in the village (laughs) yeah um which also if you're paying attention you can see that coming from a mile away from the first 10 Um, minutes yes right but also (laughs) but the thing is too that the reason i enjoy those movies is because unlike the sixth sense I don't feel like the movie hinges on that plot twist and that's where the rewatchability comes in on movies like if you can that's why psycho works so well is because 
yeah, you need that plot twist for it to fully come together, but it also doesn't, but knowing that doesn't change or, or uh, negatively impact your viewing experience. It's still a very enjoyable, fun film to watch, even when you know what's coming. Anyway. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know. I have, I've, you know, well, we, let's not argue too much about Shyamalan. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's not. There's other people we can talk about. But so, so, you know, I, and I'm even just looking through Hitchcock's filmography, the number of his films that actually have a twist, right? Yeah. Where it's like, actually the killer, the, the person that you thought was the killer through the entire film isn't, or something like that, or, you know, something changes. Oh, the story is not going, yeah, it's like, yeah, it, it changes it's not the direction. story that you think it is, yeah. It changes mm-hmm. direction all of a sudden. A lot of his films don't actually have that. They have mysteries right or kind of trying to figure out what is actually going on here they have characters who you think are might be the villain but turn out not to be and vice versa but a lot of his films really are just just more about you know the wrong man proving his innocence or um you know one of one of the most extreme examples is frenzy where you know the audience knows who the killer is within the first like 20 minutes of the film because we see him commit a murder Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the rest of the film is not really about let's figure out who the killer is. It's the other characters not knowing who the killer is and the audience being aware of it and kind of trying, you know, sort of being invested in the fact that we know that this man is dangerous and we're following him for a part of the film. And so, you know, is that a twist necessarily? I don't know if it's a twist if it happens in the first 20 minutes of the movie or if the audience is aware of it for the majority of the film while the rest of the characters aren't. Um. <laughs> um, I just Googled movies with big plot twists and I came to this Harper's Bazaar article oh, from God. last from January 31st, 2020. And it's the 35 best movie plot twists. And so I started, it's like a, um, what do you call it? A slideshow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the first one up <laughs> parasite like, oh gosh <laughs> no <laughs> what number two us three once upon a time in hollywood what there's a plot twist in that three would-be manson family killers storm into rick's hollywood hills mansion where cliff high on acid is there to welcome them that's not a plot twist that's just a plot (laughs) (laughs) it's something that happens in a movie all all things that happen in movies are not plot twists well but but i mean i think that 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 kind of points out that what we call twists necessarily i i view a twist as being something that really does change the tone of the film completely the tone or the direction yeah yeah that you think this film is one thing and there are definitely films that do that um, you think that the film is one thing and then suddenly it's like, oh, actually, this is something completely different. And mm-hmm. Hitchcock did use twists. So I'm not saying that he didn't, but a lot of his films really aren't about that. Yeah. Um, definitely the, this whole question of the building of tension and the building of suspense is is very present. One, one of the things that Hitchcock was very good at doing is oh my gosh. using the, the audience to... Um, to expect certain things, right? So we expect the, so a good example is Sabotage and spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Sabotage, it's a great film. Um, Have you seen Sabotage? Yes, but it's been a long time. 
Um, so the, one of the major moments in Sabotage is not actually the revelation of who, who the villain is. We know who the villain is for most of the film, but we're conditioned as an audience to expect that, uh, that the innocent characters are going to escape. Well, a child is blown up partway through the movie. Um, it, he, and, and you build this entire um, scene, right? Hitchcock builds this entire scene where you know where the bomb is. He's carrying the bomb. He doesn't know that he's carrying a bomb, but he's carrying a bomb and he's supposed to uh, leave it in a particular place. And he thinks that it's film canisters, right? And so throughout this whole sequence, you're like, okay, he's going to get to the place and he's gonna make it, or he's gonna drop the canisters or the bomb isn't gonna go off, et cetera. The bomb goes off. Right? It kills him, it kills a whole bunch of other people. And what's so shocking about this moment is not that the bomb goes off necessarily, but the fact that Hitchcock has, knows that we're conditioned to believe that the, the little, you know, you're not, you're not gonna kill off this cute little boy. Um, and he does. And so that in, in that certain sense is, is a twist, but it's a different kind of twist. It isn't a revelation of anything. It's mm -hmm. more like, you know, sometimes the bombs go off kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the people that you want to escape don't. And, and uh, that's what's so, I think, remarkable about a lot of his films is that he does things like that. And it is unexpected, but it's also expected when you really look at it, you're like, well, you know, the only reason why it's unexpected is because we were, con were conditioned by cinema to believe that the little boy is going to escape. Right? right, that it's not mm -hmm. going to kill him. It's going to kill some faceless strangers, but it's not going to kill this little boy that we actually have an investment in. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I think yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, so let's see what else are we? Well, let's talk about some of these things that are like supposedly notable examples of of Hitchcockian films. Yes, um, you know what are some films that we do think have this Hitchcockian vibe, I guess, this sense of this being something, even that it's something that Hitchcock could have made but didn't. Charade is the one that comes to my yeah. mind. I think it's probably the top of the list for most people. That was one that I was surprised after I'd seen it a couple of times to realize like, wait, Hitchcock didn't direct this? Because <laughs> I really thought he had. Yeah, it's directed by Stanley Donnan. Um, yeah, it's so... It, it's singing in the rain, I believe. Yeah, it's uh, it's so Hitchcockian. I mean, and plus you've got <laughs> you've got Cary Grant, who I, is deliberately cast in this in this role because yeah. you're like, well, he's Hitchcock's actor. Why isn't Hitchcock <laughs> making this movie? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and it has all of Which, those elements. Which, it's funny because Hitchcock... So, Jimmy... I was reading something the other day. Jimmy Stewart and... Um, <laughs> oh my gosh Gary Grant <laughs> I blinked on his name oh I'm struggling um that it was like they're both con considered you know like synonymous with Hitchcock like oh those are his go-to people they were each in four of his films <laughs> just yeah. on the track of what we're talking about it's like yeah, yeah we have we have these pictures of like oh he worked with them so many times he worked with each of them four times well, again, same thing with Grace yeah. Kelly. Again, I think it's, I think some of it is about how iconic those sort of mid-period American films yeah, are. That 
we we remember that oh he did you know north by northwest and notorious and vertigo and rear window and those films and then you don't know, realize like well actually that makes up you know this little slice of his film although to be fair if you forget that he didn't direct charade then you would consider that one of his Cary grant movies <laughs> I mean, he could. Pro- I I honestly like want want like someone to come out and be like, actually, Hitchcock did direct this, but like for some reason he couldn't be credited. Someone else's for it. name on it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it would not surprise um, me. Yeah, it is very Hitchcockian, and the whole thing, um, you know, the the MacGuff, the use of MacGuffin, the use of like these twists and turns where you're not quite sure who the good guy and who the bad guy mm-hmm. is. Um, and how that's all going to come out. Like there's, it's definitely a Chicago film. I think deliberately so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Especially, I mean, it comes out in 1963. So it's right in the height of Hitchcock's like biggest American popularity. So yeah, I think I think that's the case where they were probably very much trying to bank on that. Yeah. Um, some of the others that, I, I think that some some of the ones that are, that have been listed as Hitchcockian films are uh, very deliberate references to Hitchcock, right? So something like um, uh, something like a lot of the films of Brian De Palma are deliberately references to Hitchcock, that, like to the point that you De Palma has been accused of ripping Hitchcock off. Mm-hmm. Um, which I would argue is exactly what he's doing. But a lot of his films of blowout are um, uh, is very much a Hitchcock film. Like it feels like a Hitchcock film. It's it's a riff on the uh, it's it's a riff on you know the use of sound and um, this whole idea of trying to pinpoint the specific kind of sound that he's looking that the character is looking for. Then again, you know the conversation is also doing something similar, and we don't really reference that film as being Hitchcockian. So. Um, uh, but Just to Kill, uh, a lot of De Palma's films are deliberate riffs on Hitchcock, just taken to take it to a greater extreme. And I also think um, dumber, for lack of a better term, less <laughs> less engaged with like actually creating a, a true atmosphere of suspense, actually creating a true atmosphere of um, of art. <laughs> Uh, of producing something that is really, you know, interesting, um, instead producing something that is kind of lurid and and kind of a, a teenager's view of what of what Hitchcock is. Uh, so, what are some others that are like very Hitchcockian? Later films definitely reference him a lot. Hmm. Um, one of the ones just going through that list of of notable examples. One of the ones that I had thought, oh yeah, that one for sure um, is Wait Until Dark from 1967 with mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn. Um, I think Gaslight is another one that feels like um, it shares some elements. I know those aren't more recent films, but um, those are two that I definitely was like, yeah, I agree with that. And then um, as far as more recent examples, I thought it was interesting to see a simple favor on the list because that I, that actually made sense to me because yeah. like we were talking about Henri Georges Clouseau, who directed Les Diaboliques from 1955, French film, which definitely has some uh, some of the similarities to Hitchcock and and feels like yeah. I it feels like it would have been interesting to see Hitchcock make that film. I don't think it would have been too 
dissimilar actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and a simple favor shares so much, um, so many, so many of the themes and kind of the, the concept from Diabolique. So that actually made sense to me to see that on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that that's, that's a good one. I, I, some of the others, Mulholland Drive, again, I, I feel like that that's more of a film noir riff than it is a Hitchcock riff per se. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, I would like to hear you talk a little bit about a certain Spielberg film that is on this list. <laughs> well, I think there are two Spielberg films on the list. I believe The Duel is also on this list. Yes. But that one, <laughs> yeah, that one didn't surprise me when you were like, well, actually. <laughs> well, okay. So Jaws. Yeah. All right. So Jaws, I, I think one of the reasons why Jaws pops up on the list of Hitchcockian films is, is the use of musical cues. Um, and specifically the use of the, um, the shark, the, the shark theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what is actually happening is Hitchcock, um, didn't pioneer it. Again, it's a question of, you know, did he pioneer these things? No, not really, but he made them really famous. Um, and the musical cue in Psycho is such a, such a recognized cue. I mean, it shows up in parodies all the time. It shows up everywhere, right? We yeah. know that cue. Even if you've never seen Psycho, you know the the um, slashing violins, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what Spielberg is doing with Jaws. I've, I've said before that Jaws is basically a slasher movie where the murderer is a shark. Um, yeah. And that's that's what it is. And so if, if you kind of trace that backwards, you know, people say the psycho's the first slasher, don't necessarily agree, but it definitely influences slashers. Um, and in that sense also influences Jaws. So I think you've got a couple of different things going on where Spielberg is kind of taking the, you know, animal attack genre and imposing this slasher and, and yeah, Hitchcockian kind of tension onto it so that it stops really being about the shark, right? The shark is kind of incidental to, to the film. Um, and it's really more about what happens to the people. And that's very Hitchcockian. It's very, um, you know, it's, it's basically, we're gonna keep on driving the plot forward using this shark, but really what's important is, you know, what happens to the people that encounter the shark. So that would be my argument. I think that it, it's not like, it's not like, oh yeah, Hitchcock would totally make Jaws. But I think that Spielberg is definitely using um, particularly famous cues, things like the, the, the shark theme song mm-hmm. and, um, and the kind of overlaying structure of a slasher film and of the thriller, right? So because the question throughout a lot of the film is, is, does the shark exist? Okay, the viewer knows that the shark exists, but the other characters have to be convinced. Right. Um, when is the shark going to strike again? Uh, again, the viewer is often privy to, okay, the shark is coming because of those musical cues or because of the underwater shots, but all of the other characters don't know about that. You know, the people on the beach don't know that the shark is coming. They're just playing in the water. And so that's where the tension comes from. Um, and then finally, okay, we know that the shark exists. We know that the shark is going to keep on striking. How do we defeat the shark? Uh, and it's it's very much the serial killer mentality. So that's that's what I think. <laughs> well, you've convinced me. <laughs> uh, so I think I don't know. My conclusion about Hitchcockian is that we misuse the term a lot. Uh, yeah. 
uh and most i agree the, it's overused and and a lot of the things that we call hitchcockian are not really hitchcockian and you know maybe i can't believe i'm about to say this but maybe we're giving hitchcock a little too much credit um <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I even even I, I just said that the MacGuffin was something that he came up with. He didn't. Uh, he popularized the term, but a screenwriter, Angus MacPhail, um, from the 1920s, actually came up with the term the MacGuffin. Uh, that and he worked with Hitchcock, and Hitchcock used this term in a lecture in 1939, and so it became this Hitchcock thing. Uh, when in reality, this this was something that someone else had pointed out, and it had actually been pointed out by earlier people. Um, in reference to things like uh, the Perils of Pauline serials, the the item or the thing that is driving the plot, but isn't really that important to the plot. Hmm. Kind of inaugurates everything moving ahead. Uh, Some so, yeah. examples of MacGuffins in Hitchcock films would be. Um, so one of them, one of the big examples is uh, the the solution to the thirty nine steps. Mm -hmm. um, in the 39 steps. And in fact, in the, the lecture that he was making in um, 1939, I think was in reference to the 39 steps. That's what he was talking about. Um, the microfilm in North by Northwest is a MacGuffin. It's- The Money in Psycho? The Money in Psycho is a MacGuffin. Um, not all of his films have MacGuffins. I'm trying to think of another. I mean, even the, the initial mystery in Vertigo uh, you know, if you remember, Scotty is being sent out to like follow this woman around because her husband thinks she's going to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. That has almost nothing to do with most of the <laughs> film. It's just a way of getting the, the characters together. Right. Um, those are the ones that I could think of off the top of my head. Um, and the and birds in the birds. <laughs> <laughs> well, the lovebirds, no, actually the lovebirds and the birds. So the reason why Melanie goes to Bodega Bay is uh, to bring these lovebirds to Mitch, right? It's, so mm -hmm. the lovebirds are, are the MacGuffin. They're, they're not really that important. They're just kind of there in order to get things going. Um, and and Hitchcock, Hitchcock also said, I like this, the MacGuffin is the thing that the spies are after, but the audience doesn't care. <laughs> And it's true, like it's um, something similar in, in Notorious would be the, uh, um, the, the soil, the, the uranium deposits in um, the wine bottles, right? Spies mm -hmm. care, the, we don't really care about that. We only care about it insofar as it, it keeps things going, right? This is uh -huh. what they're after and this is why we care about it. What we really care about is Alicia escaping and surviving, you know? Right, you know, or like in- history. Yeah, like in The Man Who Knew Too Much, where what he knows doesn't matter. He just wants his kid back. Yeah, exactly. Like, what does he know? I, so, I often forget. I rewatch that film. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's what he was told. <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So any further final thoughts on MacGuffin or MacGuffin Hitchcockian before we move uh. on? <laughs> No, just that I, I just to reiterate my point, I think that the term has grown beyond Hitchcock himself, and it, that's why it gets so used, but it's not a really fair or accurate descriptor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we did actually have a question about Hitchcock, um, and specifically about Joan Harrison um, from at Noah underscore Saturn. How different do you think Hitchcock uh, would be without the contributions of Joan Harrison? So Joan Harrison was, and I, I might 
I might confuse this. She was his assistant for a while. She worked on a number of his scripts. She eventually became a producer. Um, she produced most of the Alfred Hitchcock Presents series. And she's widely acknowledged. She, she also did other films outside of Hitchcock. Um, but she's widely acknowledged as being one of the major uh, contributors to, to the concept of, you know, we're talking about the Hitchcock film, right? The Hitchcockian terms. Um, in her and an Alma Reville, who was uh, Hitchcock's wife and also a screenwriter in her own right. She worked as a, a, she did continuity for a lot of his films. She also worked as um, an assistant director on a couple of his early films. I think she was assistant director on The Lodger. Um, so the question about Joan Harrison is how different would Hitchcock be? Very. Uh, I think she obviously is a major contributor to his work and um there's even a, a film series still going on at film form it started in march of 2020 um and has now been picked up again uh it is about the women behind hitchcock and specifically focusing on joan harrison and, and alma as um as these forces behind uh, many of his seminal works uh, particularly she, she was particularly uh, influential in a lot of his early films, things like The Lady Vanishes, Young and Innocent, um, I believe The 39 Steps. She was a major contributor to a lot of this. So a lot of what we view as his signature style and the development of his style is very much a result of his collaboration with these women. So the answer, very, <laughs> very different. I think he would still have been a great director, but obviously his collaborators are major influences and um, major contributors to his art. Cool. Yeah. So we also had another question, um, com some not completely off topic, somewhat off topic from at Kami Mason. Why do people keep comparing Robert Eggers and Ari Aster? Are their films direction and or style actually similar or are they just two men making horror movies right now? Karen, what do you think? <laughs> uh, people keep comparing them because they're lazy. Uh, yeah, it's because yeah. they're two men making horror movies. Their movies are very different. I think if there is a similarity beyond they're making horror movies, it's that they both um are experimenting somewhat robert eggers is doing his own work and ari aster is borrowing heavily from other people yeah. um but uh yeah my my honest real answer and i know it's gonna piss people off but yeah i think that people keep comparing because of laziness not because the two actually are similar yeah the only the only similarity that really I see between them is this use of folk. Um, so folk yeah. horror and definitely less so with hereditary, but definitely with Midsommar. Um, True. Yeah. And, and Robert Eggers, obviously with the witch and, and the lighthouse, Although whether or not the lighthouse is a, a horror film per se is, I, I can see arguments for, for, for both sides. <laughs> it's the horror that is within man. Um, uh, yeah, that's, and I mean, definitely, so yeah, I think that, that interest in, in folk stories, in, in the use of folk horror itself, definitely. But even that, I think, is, is pretty loose comparison, if you're gonna yeah. say that there's any similarities, really, between Midsummer and, and The Witch. 
I yeah, no, I, I, I don't think so. Or the lighthouse. Um, right. Yeah, it, it's uh, the, the other major difference between the two of them is I love one and absolutely despise the other. So, <laughs> you know, you could take that uh, two guesses as to which one is which. Yeah, but I think I, I do think that part of the reason that these comparisons have happened is because you've got two uh, two men who kind of emerged around the same time. And so they're going to be looked at as contemporaries of each other. And so yeah, regardless of the fact that even though I don't even really love Robert Eggers' film so far, he they're really fascinating to look at. Like his visuals yeah. are really amazing. Um, Astors are, are not to me. Um, I know other people love them and fine, whatever, do your thing. But I just, I don't find anything particularly appealing about them. But I think because the two came around about the same time, they've both made two, you know, bigger movie, I guess, well-received movies. Um, they're going to always be compared throughout their careers. Yeah. I think that also they they are kind of used as sort of the, the poster boys for this concept of elevated horror. Yeah, I um, hate that term so I, much. I, I do too, but I, I think that the um, the reference point for it kind of makes sense in the sense that they are not, like, like I said, this, this use of folk horror, um, that they're, they're kind of trying to do something that different with the horror genre and i think that eggers does succeed whether or not you like what he's doing yeah uh he does succeed at doing that um and aster in my opinion doesn't again um whether or not you know you can disagree with me on that but that's what they're both trying to do yeah it makes sense sounds like someone in your apartment has an opinion <laughs> sorry about that yes the the um uh, the the lawnmower guy is outside my parents' house, and so my dog oh. is going to absolutely lose his shit. Uh, so we're going to keep on moving as quickly as we possibly can before that happens. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Mason and Noah, and as always, everybody, you know, send us your questions. Um, we do send out a call on Twitter, and we'll also try to check emails and things like that if you have specific questions um, that you want us to talk about. We always like having those things gets us talking. So. Yeah. Before we close this out, I think that we should talk at least briefly about Suicide Squad. Um, <laughs> going back to, you know, we from the sublime of Alfred Hitchcock to the ridiculousness of James Gunn. Um, Suicide Squad, it's a movie that is out. Uh, well, it has, sorry, I'm sorry. Are we talking about Suicide Squad or The Suicide the, Squad? Because those are very different squad. movies. The Suicide Squad. And I had to explain, I've had to explain this to multiple people now. It's just like, no, it's a different movie. It's like, didn't that come out like five years ago? It's like, no, it's a, it's a different movie, but it's the same thing. <laughs> like it's the same story kind of, but about something different and it's directed by someone different. And it might be a sequel sort of mostly, but not um yeah i i've told people like no this is a completely different movie because it's the suicide squad <laughs> not just some uh, random general generic suicide squad this is the suicide squad the suicide squad i actually got a text message from a friend this morning who said suicide squad was really bad and i said but what about the suicide squad and he didn't tell me what he thought he just left <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so, you know, people, you know what this movie's about. It almost doesn't matter what this movie is about. It's about the Suicide Squad, a group of supervillains who are offered time off um, from their prison terms if they work for the US government. Um, so, you know, kind of an interesting concept, but... <laughs> Sure. How how is this executed? Well, the original um, Suicide Squad, directed by David Ayer, is awful. Um, this film, The Suicide Squad, directed by James Gunn, is better, I think. Um, yeah. But that's that's really about all I can say about it. I think it's coherent. Um, I like the I actually the reason why I watched this film in the first place was the cast. Um, you know, we've got Idris Elba, Margot Robbie is back, uh, um, various different people, pe uh, what's his name, Nathan Fillion is there for a hot second, <laughs> Taika Waititi is there for a hot second. Yeah, uh, let's talk um, about that. Don't tell me Taika Waititi <laughs> is in your movie and then give him one line of dialogue. Just don't do that. That's not right. I Okay, all right, first of all, spoiler alert, like, just to let everybody know, if you haven't seen it yet, you know, skip forward a bit. Uh, I kept on expecting him to like come back. Yeah. To be like a character in the film. Yeah. And instead he like has a line. Yep. What the fuck? In a flashback. And it's yeah. a great line and he does a great job giving it, but come on. That was very mean. <laughs> like I already didn't want to watch this movie and then you go and do that to me. Like, fuck you, James Gunn, go away. Not nice. I was actually partway through the film. I, I was like, I was like, oh, Karen must be so mad. I was very mad. <laughs> she must be so upset right now. I mean, I did like uh, Daniela. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to mangle for last name. Melchior, Melchior, uh, as as Ratcatcher, as Taika Waititi's daughter. Yes. I, I thought that she gave it. I thought that she was great. It was nice to have another, you know, female member of the team um, other than Harley. Mm -hmm. as much as I love Harley and, and so I I enjoyed her but I was still just like is it is it Taika Waititi in this movie <laughs> I thought he was I was kind of looking forward to maybe there being some you know interplay between him and Harley but no yeah could you imagine how magical that would have been oh my gosh I mean that would uh, be a yeah. movie in itself like I would pay to see that I want that movie now Kathy yeah. Ann <laughs> <laughs> I need you to do the next Birds of Prey movie as a like well it doesn't really matter when stuff takes place I guess so just make sure rat catchers in your next one well and, uh, yeah well in this in this film Harley has been is back in prison right, right? but after so, what after like a, a, a bank heist sure or attempted but bank that's heist. what I'm saying it's like so, who knows when this is in comparison to Birds of Prey <laughs> Yeah, no, exactly. But you can have like that in an interim mm -hmm. something, and I don't know. Just have Taika Waititi and, and Margot Robbie is in the same film, yeah. please. Um, yeah, I, I was very underwhelmed by this film, especially given how like how much hype it was getting. Uh, not just like from Warner Brothers, but people saying like, "Oh, this is you know one of the best DC films um, that has come out. This is like amazing. You know, this is this makes DC, you know superhero movies fun. All of that." And I was like. Does it? I mean, I like Harley. I knew that I was going to like Harley. I even like Harley in the original Suicide Squad, mm -hmm. um, despite everything that's done to her. I think she she definitely has a better time in this one. Um, 
and get some great lines and some good action scenes. But, you know, I like it yourself. I like the cast, but I, I don't feel like any of them are really given much. No, I agree. I think what the, <laughs> I think what this movie does best is the same with Gardens of the Galaxy. It has a good soundtrack like yeah. the needle drops are, are good and they lead into some sometimes some fun like you said action scenes but i think even most of the action scenes in this are actually kind of boring honestly i was bored watching this movie and after everyone has spent the last week or two weeks maybe talking about how this is so great i was just like well i mean i i wasn't super looking forward to it but i thought well I'm going to give it a go. What, why not? You know, and it just, I was bored. And in a movie yeah. where there's so much like explosions and, and just gory violence that was honestly just like for 18 year old boys, as well as all the dick jokes. Um, I just was like, this is not, maybe i'm not the target demographic for it i don't know i tend to enjoy comic book movies so i don't think that's the problem uh i just i didn't enjoy it i don't i don't think it's a bad movie it's not it's just that i didn't i didn't have fun with it i felt like it was honestly there are certain parts where it's trying to lighten things up you know and like doing some things that are are more lighthearted, goofy silly kind of action but and that was fine, but I felt like the plot itself tried to take itself too seriously. Yeah, it's it's very, it's this weird combination of of like let's take seriously like a dude with these like weird things coming out of his head, and you know like the a keiju basically. There's a giant. Uh, or can we say? It's a, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we're gonna you know we're gonna spoil this movie. It's a giant starfish, yeah. right, with an eye. And, Which is not the slam term for butthole. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 that that's the thing. Like there were there were some things that I was like, oh, this it, it felt out of place somehow. Yeah. Like because I was watching it, I'm like, you know what? I'm willing to go along with a lot of dumb shit in movies, mm-hmm. right? But for some reason, this just feels dumb. This doesn't feel funny or or entertaining. Really, this is just kind of why is this happening the <laughs> like, movie why are we doing to this? it yeah the movie leading up to it needed to be funnier and sillier but instead yeah. you've got this like semi-serious well the serious and very overused um plot of idris elba is there not because he wants to be but because he's trying to protect his daughter who's about to go down for some big crime and then that she probably didn't even do who knows but uh and then they uncover this major plot as a result of this kaiju monster thing and that never really gets explored and it's like pick a lane pick a lane yeah no i think i think that that was just it it, it, there's a weird tonal shift and i think that films can pull that off right and you can have these moments of really extreme violence with humor and lightness Mm-hmm. right and you can do that and you can also use that to make commentary and stuff like that but this didn't really nothing gelled as far as i was concerned um no, and I, I, I am bothered i'm bothered by the collateral damage in this film and oh, so i'm usually much. not bothered by collateral damage but the reason for it is you've got these you know super villain characters etc i mean there's a whole sequence again spoilers 
there's a whole sequence where they just straight up murder a whole bunch of people who are actually on their side yeah and um, it's supposed and it's, to be funny and yeah it's played off as humorous and and it's like i don't think this is funny like like outside of the world of the film i don't find this funny this just seems like we're using you know the freedom fighters these by the way Lat- these latinx characters right mm-hmm. as disposable bodies basically that our heroes are just like oh whoopsie daisy you know it's like oh no we murdered all of those people and it just doesn't come off as being particularly funny or or clever or anything like that it's just like this is just kind of nasty and 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 not nasty in like a way that makes sense to the rest of the film right um yeah, and, and talking about the the action, uh, there was a point. Harley has one big sort of fight scene, right? Some of which <laughs> I really liked. I, I yeah, there there are definitely elements that I like in that, but it's some of it is very close to the the fight scene in the jail, in uh, in Birds of Prey, except not good. Yeah, and yeah, and in, wa- exactly. in watching it, I was like. I feel like, you know, we're not getting to see her, the action, right? And one of the cool things about Harley is that she is this acrobatic figure, right? She's, she's a clown. Um, she's a Harlequin. And we're not actually getting to see much of that from her. We're getting, you know, we have these really fast cuts, a kind of a wobbly camera. We're not really getting to see that artistry that you do get to see uh, in the jail sequence in, um, in Birds of Prey. And so that was the point at which I was like, so Kathy Ann is much better action director than James Gunn is mm-hmm. because that's the in two scenes they're very similar one of them is much better than the other one. Oh yeah you put a side-by-side comparison and it's just like wow what what Kathy Ann and Margot Robbie did was so great and and the use of like color and glitter in Kathy Ann's scene yeah where it's like really I don't know it just it stands out so much more and it's so clever and what James Gunn gives us is not clever it's not particularly interesting and it doesn't really show us what like just to your point it does not show us what Harley is able to do how 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 skilled she really is yeah it kind of does but not to the level that like if we hadn't seen birds of prey if we didn't have that as a comparison it'd be like okay yeah that scene is fine we wouldn't know what we were missing yeah it's it's implied that she is that she's very capable and a badass and all of that but it's not really shown that she's very capable and a badass Mm -hmm. i literally finished watching the suicide squad and immediately turned on birds of prey and watched that last night too and i'm so glad i did because that was a much more fun (laughs) experience uh, yeah, so I think that basically we're coming down to neither one of us were particularly overawed by the Suicide Squad. Um, I think it, you liked it more than I did, actually, which is really? funny. Yeah, it's, it's. I think that it's a step up from Suicide Squad, but that's not saying very much. No, it's it's coherent in that I know what the plot is and I know how we're getting there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> and and you know give a little bit of credit not tons of credit a little bit of credit we do not have any upskirt shots um, that's true we do not have any down the blouse shots we do not have the just like gross objectification of harley that we had um in in suicide squad and but honestly i kind of credit Marco robbie for that more than anything else because i feel like she just kind of took the harley character and was kind of like, okay this is mine now 
Um, yeah. You're, she, she's mine. No, you can't have her. No one can have her. She's mine. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just like, well, we wanted to. No, uh-uh. <laughs> mine. <laughs> yep. Um, and I really need Birds of Prey, too. Yeah, please bring bring back. Just just let let this happen. Like, please, please. So much better. Kathy Ann is so much better at this. Um, yes. All right. So on that note, I think that we can close this out. We have had a, kind of a bizarre moving back and forth episode. <laughs> uh, Hitchcock, James Gunn is for Sezi. Um, and Margot Robbie. And Margot Robbie, who's awesome. So uh, as always, we want to thank our patrons. Our patrons include Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for supporting us, guys. And we are going to have a watch party coming up very soon. Um, we're going to watch uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is a, just such a fantastic film. That um, is for, that's a Patreon-specific event for the 5 yeah. and $7 levels. So. Yes. Um, so we are looking forward to that. And, and then also we will be recording a bonus episode discussing uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit for everybody, uh, for all of our patrons. So if you yes. want to join them, our Patreon is patreon.com slash citizen dame. We have fun bonus episodes, trying to do more stuff with uh, patrons now that maybe we have some time to do it in. Possibly, I don't know. Uh, it's hard work living right now. Um, you, we also have a Ko-Fi, ko-fi.com uh, slash citizen dame. If you just want to throw us a couple of dollars, um, but don't feel like making the Patreon commitment, we have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. Everybody should be wearing their masks again. Um, let's, let's kick this one. Come on, guys. We're really tired. Uh, pandemic's been going on for too long. Um, we also have our website, of course. Website is uh, citizendamepod.com, and we have some reviews up. Got some more Blu-ray reviews coming from me. Um, and I don't know if Karen, do you have more things coming up that you're planning on doing? Yeah, yeah, I do. I will be this week. I will be reviewing the movie Respect, starring Jennifer Hudson as Ooh. Aretha Franklin. Cool. Look forward to that um so that's uh citizendamepod.com we also have our email address uh, citizendamepod at gmail.com you can send us your questions comments suggestions etc be nice to us and we will be nice to you <laughs> and Pretty that goes much. for all of our social media we are on twitter <laughs> and instagram at citizendamepod and we are also now on letterboxd at citizendame where we have lists of stuff and things and many lists uh, related to the episodes and also just ongoing lists talking about how awesome female directors are so check those out um and get in touch with us however you would like you can also get in touch with us uh, individually, I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at LH Business. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. And so thank you so much for listening to us, guys. We will talk to y'all later. Bye. God damn it. Sit the fuck down. What? I said, sit your skinny ass down, dumb slut. Okay. My fucking legs! Oh, boo! What? <laughs> it's not a party without a little drama, am I right? Come on!
Turn it up. Shots in the house. Call me dumb. I have a PhD, motherfucker. 